Well, we're glad you're here, and we're glad, we're glad you've joined us for worship. And this morning, uh, a brother of mine is going to be sharing, a brother in Christ, uh, is going to be sharing today. Uh, Marcus, you know, many of you know Marcus and Ariana. They're missionaries that we support with crew down at CMU, and just have a, an awesome ministry of discipleship and evangelism down there. I asked if he would come and share with you, and the Lord has laid on his heart uh, some, some thoughts on prayer as we continue to, to talk and think and meditate about those things. So... Marcus? Thank you. Good morning, church. I'm excited to be in God's Word with you all this morning. A couple of you may have heard through a prayer request in Sunday school last week or saw via social media, but Ariana and I actually had the chance to go down to New Mexico uh, early Monday morning, being in campus ministry. Uh, we've partnered with uh, Campus Ministries in New Mexico to go and encourage them and see what God is doing on these college campuses. So we flew out Monday morning and landed in Albuquerque and then worked our way south through the state from there, ending in El Paso, Texas, flying back, getting home Friday night and having spent time in Eastern Standard Time, Central Standard Time, Mountain Standard Time, and Daylight Savings Time. I'm still not quite sure what day or time it is, but I'm glad you'll still have me. If uh, this is your first Sunday with us and you're coming in dazed and confused, your speaker is too, so you're welcome here. Uh, we've been talking a lot about prayer this uh, year as a church. Back in March, we had some time looking at the doctrine of prayer and spent about, I think, six weeks uh, walking through what God's Word says about prayer. And then this past week, we just finished the Lord's Prayer, where we talked about what to pray and how to pray. And so with last week being the final part of the Lord's Prayer, we're going to have one more talk on prayer, but this is going to be looking at the posture of prayer. This isn't so much a talk for the church that doesn't pray, rather it's for the church that does pray and some of the problems that they may face. But before we begin, let me tell you a story of a man named Tomas Martinez. Tomas was a homeless man living in the streets of Bolivia in the year 2000. One day, Tomas noticed some police officers approaching him. And he was known in the community for illegal drug use, he was the town drunk, and so he assumed this must not be anything good, and so he fled from the police. A couple of days later, the police approached him again, and so he fled again. And this led to a long game of cat and mouse between Tomas and the police. Now, <clears throat> Tomas never knew why the police were approaching him. He assumed it was for uh, the drug use, but it actually, that wasn't why the police were uh, approaching him and trying to get his attention. You see, Tomas's ex-wife, Ines, had passed away, and Ines had inherited a large sum of money from her family, and she had left behind Tomas six million dollars, holding no uh, bad qualms towards him uh, for walking out several years prior. The police continued to look for Tomas, and eventually he disappeared without a trace. Even to this day, he still has not uh, recovered his inheritance. Now, I would argue Tomas didn't know his prayers had been answered 
because he didn't believe that his prayers could be answered. He was waiting for his breakthrough. He was waiting for the time that things would finally be right in his life and he'd no longer be living this homeless lifestyle. And yet all along he was running from the very breakthrough that he was hoping for. This is similar to where we're going to be this morning in Acts chapter 12. Now, let me give you some context while you're flipping to Acts chapter 12. Uh, Acts is a book of the Bible that is talking about the beginning of God's church. It's the story of God's church moving forward. It's overcoming every physical and social and spiritual barrier that stands in its way. And God is not going to move without his church either. So, as we start Acts, Jesus is resurrected, and he tells his disciples and witnesses that they will go to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth proclaiming the gospel. The next five chapters after this is the account of the disciples going to Jerusalem and Judea. People hear the gospel, they believe, and receive the Holy Spirit. The next five chapters, the disciples go to Samaria. People hear the gospel, they believe, and they receive the Holy Spirit. Now we're about to go to the world. Paul's about to embark on his first missionary journey, but before he does, Luke, the author, takes a detour in Acts for us, with Acts chapter 12. This is where we'll be this morning. Uh, 12 verses 1 through 17, but we'll just be reading to 11 for this first part. Uh, About that time... Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John with the sword, and when he saw it please the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread, and when he had seized him, he put him in prison, and delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on the very night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, the angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter on the side, woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off of his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city, and it opened for them to its own accord. And they went out along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people that we're expecting him. So the praying church is God's vessel to the world. It's not that God's confined to the church or that we have a monopoly on God or that we've put God in a box or in a cage. In fact, as you read through the rest of Acts, you'll see God continues to break the boxes and cages that the religious leaders try to contain him in. But God's kingdom is going to come forward and he's going to do it with his church. He's not going to do it without them. I love John Piper's thoughts on uh, God's church, the kingdom, and prayer. And I'll read that for you real quick as well. 
Prayer is weird, and prayer is awesome. God has a purpose to gather his people, and he asks his people and says to them, ask me to send laborers to gather my people. God says, ask me. He knows he's going to send laborers. He knows it's coming. He promised it. But he commands us to ask, ask me, ask me seven times. I'm not doing it unless you ask me and show your persevering in prayer. So, what is the church to do? We are to pray earnestly, knowing that God is able and trusting in God's will. So praying according to God's ability and will are essential ingredients in our prayer life. And we pray according to one and not the other. It's deficient and a really uh, important, essential piece of it. So I consider it like the process of making coffee. So coffee, good coffee, is my favorite drink in the whole wide world. I've had the opportunity to taste coffee from different countries, and America can really step its game up on making coffee. Um, but when it's done correctly, it's phenomenal. There's a taste to it, a body to it, a smell to it. Um, coffee is amazing, but it needs all three essential ingredients. It needs some hot water, it needs a filter, or some type of filter source, and it needs the coffee grounds. And if you take one of the three things out, now all of a sudden your coffee's not going to come out the way it's supposed to. Let's say that our prayers are like our hot water, and we pour out our prayers for God. Let's say God's will is the filter. Our prayers pass through God's will as we pray. And let's say God's power and his ability is the grounds, the caffeine behind the prayer. Now, if we're going to start praying, and we decide that we're not going to pray according to God's will, we're just going to ask for his power and ability in our life. We're going to pour the hot water out, and it's going to pass through, but what's going to be on the other side isn't going to be good. It's going to be clumpy. It's going to not have an even taste to it. You'll have sometimes you drink and it's way too strong and you spit it out, and then other times you drink and it's just going to taste like hot water. It's not even. But let's say we want to be really holy and spiritual. We don't want to ask God for too much, so we're only going to pray according to God's will and negate the power and his ability that he offers to us. So we take our prayers and we pour it through God's will, but we don't include his power. Then what do we have? We have bland, tasteless, hot water. But when you take the three things, God's power and his will, and we pray according to these two things, you will get something beautiful on the other end that is sustaining and that will wake you up and make you feel more alive. This is how we're to pray. So the church in Acts 12 is praying here. James has been martyred, and Peter's next. The church gathers to pray, and the miraculous happens. Peter's freed. Now, when I was first working on this message, I put, the unthinkable happens, Peter is freed. But that doesn't seem accurate. I mean, the apostles have been saved from prison before, and they're talking to the God who's created everything in the universe. It doesn't seem unthinkable that Peter would be freed from the church. It's actually right according to what they asked for. And so 
you'd think their response when Peter comes to the home would be something along the lines of, the Lord has heard our prayers. Peter, we knew God could rescue you and deliver you from prison. We knew that he was able. And yet, we find the opposite to be true. The miraculous turns out to be unthinkable to the church. They got what they prayed for, and let's look how they respond. 12 through 17 in Acts 12. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many had gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked on the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. So what's happening here? The church's persecution continues to happen. One of the beloved apostles, James, has been martyred for his faith, and Peter is up next. The problem is, though, the church gathers to pray, and Peter is stuck on the outside of the church, knocking to get in. Now, the text says the church was praying, but it doesn't imply that they were just casually praying. It says earnestly praying. I, I bet this prayer service, there were people with tears. They were weeping. I bet people were pleading with God at this service. I bet people were singing songs and hymns with intense conviction, and yet, in the middle of this prayer service, their answer is on the outside knocking to get in. Just like how Tomas Martinez ran from his answers to prayer, so the church in Acts ignored their answer to prayer, and so I believe we as the church can be guilty of ignoring God's answers to prayer in our own life. We pour out the water and often forget to add the grounds of God's power and the filter of God's will in our prayers. As we consider from this text, I want to share two things that I think the American church is guilty of because they're praying fervently for, and their answer is on the other side of the door knocking. So the first thing that I want to share is we pray fervently for young people in the next generation. It goes on in our Sunday schools, in our Bible study. We're constantly praying for the next generation. And yet when the next generation comes knocking, we often turn the blind eye or rationalize them away. We'll say things like, but Lord, their music is just so loud. It can't be glorifying to you. But God, they just don't see the world like I do. They can't really believe in you. But God, they just don't want to do things the way we've always done things. They can't really know the Bible. But God, they have tattoos. <laughs> if I can be honest and vulnerable with you, one of the hardest parts of being campus ministry is seeing student after student come to faith and develop this red-hot faith in Jesus Christ. They study their Bibles intensely. They learn to share their testimony in the gospel, and so they go share it in the dorms and with their family and go to other countries to share it. 
They take pay cuts to go live in the poor communities to be a light there. They go get plugged into churches and want to be in Bible study or help lead a Bible study. And in their excitement and in their passion, they graduate from college and move to a new place and go to church after church after church where they're stared at. They're whispered about, maybe even gossiped over. They're kept at an arm's length from things. They're told they need to cool their faith down and we just don't share the same values or the same sense of urgency that you have. And it's heartbreaking because as I talk to these alumni and ask them how their walk with Jesus is going, the common story is, well, we graduated, we really wanted to get plugged into a local church and multiply our lives and serve the community, and we went to all of these churches, but no one seemed interested in us when we came here. So eventually we settled, and we're just going to a church that has good sermons and good music that we like. Is that all that church has been boiled down to now in our society? Good sermons and good music that we like? And what's more heartbreaking than this experience is that I know these churches are praying for the next generation. Because being in ministry, especially campus ministry, every church I go to, I'm told how much they're praying for the next generation. Could you imagine being at war and you're losing people and you're tired and you're exhausted from constantly pushing against the forces of evil. And when reinforcements come, you turn them away because they're younger and do things differently than you do. Now, I'm not saying give young people the keys to your church. I'm not saying put them to be the commander of your army. But would you believe me if I told you that real, genuine, authentic Christianity, that's actually exploding with young people? Jesus is no longer something useful for them to get a spouse, to have a nice life, to have health. Jesus, the person, is just what's beautiful to them. They continue to move forward. They're planning churches, going to the nations, having babies and raising godly families. They're teaching in our public schools because they want to witness to kids and love on them. But when they come knocking on our prayer meeting, are we going to let them in? Secondly, we pray for God to bring revival in our country but we get offended when God comes to examine us as the church. Now, revival and idolatry cannot coexist with each other. When you look at the Old Testament, you'll see the Israelites, every time that they were sincere in their repentance, they destroyed their idols before God. They would burn them, they would break them, they would bury them, they would get rid of them. But there would also be times in the Old Testament where things were really bad for the Israelites. For the people of God. And so the people of God would go and repent before God, but they'd hide their idols. They'd keep them in that closet that no one looks in. They might put them under the furniture, but they wouldn't destroy the idols that are in the camp. And what would happen is one of two things to the people of God when they wouldn't break their idols. They would either A, receive silence from God, and God would leave them to their situation. Or worse, they would instead be God would increase their judgment and their punishment until that they would break down their idols. God shares his blessings with us, but God will not share his praise or his glory with an idol. 
And when a pastor comes into town and starts to talk about how we should or shouldn't spend our money, or when a pastor comes to town and says how we should or shouldn't use our freedoms and our time, or when a pastor comes and says something we politically disagree with, the church is one of the first places to run them out of town. Church family, if God's going to bring a revival to this country, shouldn't it start here and work its way out from there? It doesn't happen that all of a sudden the pagans become Christians and then come to the Christians and make them more Christian. It happens when the Christians become more Christian and then the other people see the glow that's inside them, see the love of God that's within them, see the fire from the Holy Spirit that's burning inside of them. And that's where revival starts. But are we willing to, when the pastor or Holy Spirit comes knocking on our prayer meeting door, to have them come inside and examine us for our sins? When I consider earnest praying, yet doubtfully believing, there's a quote from C.S. Lewis that I'd like to share. It says, A Christian prays faintly, lest God might really hear him, which he, the poor man, never intended. We pray quietly because of the possibility that God might really hear us. Yeah, God, save the next generation, but keep them over there. Yeah, God, save the people who have political uh, deficiencies and things we don't stand for, but keep them over there. And so this shows that our problem is, while our prayers may be earnest before God, our hearts are often <clears throat> apathetic to him. Just like the church back in Acts, today, God's church is growing exponentially. There's estimates that in my lifetime, China's going to have more Christians than the USA. It's also quoted, or assumed and thought that South Korea sends more missionaries than any other country in the world. God is doing something powerful in this world. We're praying for God to move in our communities, in our nation, in the world, and for his kingdom to come like the Lord's Prayer says. But are we an open or a closed floodgate when it comes? Paul later in Acts chapter 13 quotes Habakkuk and saying, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in you that would not be believed even if told. And God is doing it but we don't see much wonder or astounding about him nowadays. And I do want to recognize this is heavy. I don't want you to think I'm not guilty of doing the same things, that when I pray, my answers are outside knocking too, but I just don't believe God's going to do it. Going through this prayer journey as a church has made me realize how weak and feeble my own prayer life is. But I do want us to hear some good news this morning. We may be praying earnestly, yet even though we're unbelieving, we are getting what we're asking for. I want us to see that even our weakest prayers can be answered because one of Jesus' mightiest prayers wasn't. So did you know that Jesus didn't have all of his prayers answered? He's the perfect person. He's fully God. He's fully man. He lived a sinless life. He did everything right. He lived his entire life based around the kingdom of God. And he was passed over in prayer. Why? On the night before one of the most torturous moments fathomable, Jesus earnestly prayed. 
like the church earnestly prayed for Peter, but the ending is different this time. While the church earnestly prayed for Peter and had some unbelieving tendencies, they prayed that Peter would not be pierced by the sword, and Peter was delivered. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane earnestly prayed that this cup would pass from him, and he was not delivered from being pierced on a cross. Mark chapter 14, we can see Jesus' prayer, if you'd read that with me. Verses 32-42. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, that the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words, the words from 36. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And again, he came and found them sleeping. And for their eyes were very heavy, they did not know what to answer him. And he, and he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Is it not enough the hour has come? The Son of Man is betrayed and going into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go, seeing my betrayer is at hand. Here, James and Peter are listed again. Only this time, rather than living bold and for the kingdom like they are in Acts 12, they can't keep their eyes open. They're sleeping. Jesus prays. In another gospel account, it says he prays so fervently and is so distressed that he sweats drops of blood. This should tell you, though, how unstoppable God's kingdom is. Because while Peter and James were sleeping, Jesus was praying that this cup would pass from him, and he received silence. The silence that Jesus received was the greatest answer that we could have ever received. It means that the life that he was not spared from was the life we were spared to. This is God's unstoppable kingdom. The church in Acts 12 was earnestly praying, and yet while unbelieving, Peter was delivered. But James, John, and Peter were saved from eternal death, from eternal separation from God, from eternity in hell, and they weren't even awake enough to pray for it. We were saved from eternal death, eternal separation from God, and eternity in hell before we could even pray about it as well. This is God moving unshakably on behalf of his kingdom and of his church and of his sons and daughters. Will we pray like that's true? Now, I do want to address one particular understanding of this message. That's the faith the size of a mustard seed can move mountains message. And that's not what we're here for this morning. This isn't a time to fire you up to go out and move mountains. The mountains can wait. This is a message for us to call us to pour our prayers through the grounds of God's power 
and the knowledge of God's will and to trust him in that. To trust in God's power that he can do more than we could ever fathom or imagine. And to trust in God's will when he chooses not to. Peter isn't the only apostle mentioned in Acts 12. James is too. And James didn't get the delivering that Peter did. And the church in Acts 12, after they prayed, should have flung the doors open when Peter was outside knocking in celebration that their prayers had been answered. But if the story would have been different and Peter wasn't delivered, the church was to rest knowing that God's kingdom will was going to continue to go forward. I believe the second best example of this posture in our lives can be found in Daniel chapter 3. It's just a short uh, couple of verses that will be on the screen if you'd prefer just to read it there instead of flipping to Daniel. But when standing in the face of death and extreme suffering and enormous loss, these three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, modeled this posture of trusting God's power and God's will for us. King Nebuchadnezzar commanded these three men to bow to a statue that represented his kingdom and his power, where he burned them alive in a furnace. And this is how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego respond. O King Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O King. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. This is the posture that has passed through the grounds in filter. We believe God is able, O king, but if not, we still will not bow. Peter, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were delivered from their execution. James wasn't. But all of these men... James, Peter, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were delivered from eternal death. They were delivered from their execution. They were delivered from their eternal furnace because of what Jesus did on the cross for them. And for us, we too have been delivered from our eternal death. We've been delivered from our eternal furnace. And we've been delivered from our eternal execution because of what Jesus has done. You see, for the guys who mentioned in the Bible, the best thing that death could do, or the worst thing that God, excuse me, the worst thing that death could do to them is refine them into something beautiful. And because of Jesus Christ and standing in faith in what he's done for us on the cross, the worst thing death can do to you is refine you into something beautiful. This is the God that we pray to. And he says the gates of hell will not prevail against what he's going to do with you, with the church, and with his kingdom. So what are we to do then? We are to pray knowing that God is unshakably moving on behalf of his kingdom, and of his church, and of his sons, and of his daughters. So in closing, will you pray in such a way that when God's answers come knocking on your door, you'll fling the doors open in praise and thanksgiving for what God's doing? And will you pray in such a way that when the knock never comes, you'll rest 
knowing God's will is unshakably for you, for his church, and for his kingdom, and it will not fail. Let's pray. Father, we ask 